And welcome to this Arrow release of Robert Dubell's 1982 slasher, Girls' Night Out. I'm Justin Kurzweil. I'm the author of Teenage Wasteland, the slasher movie uncut, uh, the webmaster of Hysteria Lives, and the co-host uh, of the slasher movie podcast, The Hysteria Continues. And I'm delighted to be joined by film historian Amanda Reyes. Uh, how are you doing, Amanda? I'm good. Uh, again, my name is Amanda Reyes. I am the editor and co-author of Are You in the House Alone? A TV Movie Cont Compendium, 1964 to 1999. And I'm really excited to be here because I love this movie. Spoiler! <laughs> well, I said likewise. It's a it's a complicated movie in so much. It's not, not complicated in plot-wise necessarily, but... Uh, it, uh, it's one of those kind of slasher movies that to me is kind of quite schizophrenic in so much that it's kind of it promote it was promoted as being a humor horror movie and so it has elements of both um, but it is quite uh, it's it's quite schizophrenic it's not quite the right word but uh, it's um, we'll be talking about it in the kind of context uh, and especially compared to some of the other horror movies and certainly some of the the cast in this uh appeared in uh, other slash movies of the time so um so amanda when was the first time you can remember when you first came across girls night out i can i was um it was the early 90s and it was on one of the local cable channels uh like tbs or something and I was really taken with this movie. It was a real big time of discovery for me, the early 90s, in terms of going back and watching slashers. And this movie would actually end up becoming a really big inspiration for me. It is um, one of the movies that I referenced heavily in the only slasher movie script I've ever written. I took the scavenger hunt and I lifted it and I put it into my script and I took the elements from Killer Party and pieces and I mixed them all together and I made uh, my one and only completed slasher script. So this movie is very close to my heart. It came on all the time. I saw it several times in the 90s. I just find it really, really uh, irresistible and charming. Yeah, well, it's it's a film. Um, likewise for me, I, I saw it uh, probably back in the mid 80s, I think on or early-ish, mid-80s, maybe 1983, when I was about 14 or 15, on the VTC uh, label in the UK. And if anyone listening is old enough to remember uh, the VTC preset label, the kind of the gold video box, and they put out great titles from that time, like Superstition uh, and uh, sort of other movies at that, that time. And I remember seeing it uh, then, and I hadn't seen it for a number of years, and I recalled up with it in the early 2000s, I think, when I was writing a review for my website, um, so it's it's funny to see a little film that I didn't think anyone else had seen now getting a fantastic Blu-ray release from Arrow. It's, uh, it's great to see. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's just this weird little movie that kind of came and went. And, of course, when slashers, which seem to come and go in and out of favor um, in the horror world, um, it kind of kept coming up again and again. It's one of those kind of movies that I think you say schizophrenic, but I think it's because it, it has this really interesting mixture of humor and horror that it kind of sticks with us because the... Humor is really interesting because we were talking earlier before recording that this isn't necessarily a funny movie, but it is a fun film, right? But it also has some really eerie horror elements to it that are quite effective. Well, yeah, that's that, that's the thing for me when I first watched it, and even watching it now, is that it's it's funny how the movie kind of starts with kind of very ominous music, it closes with ominous music, and it has this kind of this killer who dresses in the mascot, which we're bear mascot we're going to see. Uh, coming up shortly, um, predating Freddy Krueger with the uh, the knives for fingers, uh, and he, the way the killer kind of hisses slurs like whore, bitch, 
um, at these, these these girls, almost exclusively girls that he kills, although not completely exclusively, um, it, it adds that kind of strange kind of juxtaposition between the kind of the, um, the kind of frat boy humour of the film, uh, and uh, and also of course the the ending is is one of the most um, not transgressive, I know that's quite the right word, but it, you got a movie that hasn't taken itself very seriously ends in this kind of very creepy note, um, which I can remember it kind of just kind of watching it um, multiple times. And it actually it still takes me by surprise quite how jarring that kind of deathly cold uh, kind of coda to the movie is. It's kind of, it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's very sort of interesting. I mean, when we talk about who was involved in this movie from the, um, uh, the makers, which we'll do a little bit later when we talk about some of the cast, it's, um, it was uh, kind of, there was a lot of comedians involved with this. Uh, and also, so I think it seemed like there were people wanting to make a funny movie and people wanted to make a horror movie. But obviously the inspiration for the movie comes from two very well, two very popular genres, um, which kind of cannibalized themselves uh, throughout the early 1980s. And one of them, of course, was Animal House, the kind of the uh, the frat, um, uh, frat boy kind of uh, kind of comedy movie, which is incredibly influential in the early 1980s and throughout the, the 1980s on, on kind of straight to video movies. And of course, Halloween and especially Friday the 13th. And so mixing the two, Friday the 13th and um, uh, Animal House, uh, it was seen as almost like the golden formula about how to make the perfect teen horror movie uh, to throw in uh, kind of um, that and music and all the kind of things that would, in theory, uh, create box office gold. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you say that because uh, we have both talked about Richard Knowles' Blood Money uh, quite a bit in different venues, but... Um, you know, he wrote a lot about how horror filmmakers often looked at non-horror movies to see what those formulas were and then would um, implement elements of those movies into um, their film, as well as things that were like uh, culturally significant. Like, for instance, um, Richard Noel talks a lot about how in Black Christmas, they were very specific to have Jess's character, played by Olivia Hussey, be pregnant and want to get an abortion because at the time, second wave feminism in 1974 was kind of peaking. And they look towards that. And then they also look towards movies like A Love Story, not necessarily in Black Christmas, but in other movies. Um, and so they would use movies that emphasized um, horror, I'm not horror, romance into their films. And so, yeah, it, it wasn't uncommon for filmmakers to look and see what other types of films were popular. And at this point, I think Porky's would have been huge as well. And that's just complete, you know, wall to wall, like goofball humor. And you can see a lot of that being incorporated in here. And so it's probably no surprised that one of the writers and there were several writers of this film was Joel Bolster who was a stand-up comedian um and who won a huge competition in 1978 called I think the Great Laugh-Off and um Eddie Murphy won the year after him um and so it's just kind of like this interesting mixture of of people involved in the film but uh definitely one of one of the writers was an actual stand-up comedian and some of the actors had uh, uh comedy troops as well it's it's one of the things I think is interesting. I mean, it's we've uh, talked about some films and other commentaries, which I won't mention at the moment, but is that there's a lot of uh, theatre talent as well that have been involved in some of these mm -hmm. movies. And because this movie, although it's um, set in Ohio, isn't it? Uh, it was actually filmed sort of outside New York. Uh, so it's incorporated. Uh, I mean, I would talk about some of them, some of the uh, kind of people that have been involved in uh, plays around the time. Uh, kind of utilizing talent from off Broadway, I kind of guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There was there's a huge New York uh, 
talent pool used for this. And I think actually the producer co-writer, uh, whose last name is Curgis, um, Kevin Curgis, he said that they got something like 500 resumes from actors in the New York area. And one of the things he said that struck me was that um, many of the actors were quite good. And he's right. He assembled a really solid cast. And most of them do have really, really heavy uh, theatrical backgrounds um, and a couple of them this is just the first thing they ever did or was very close to the first thing they ever did but most of them have had I could trace back into some kind of early theater experience before they did this film um, also this is a real life coach um, do, you, do you know much about him I know a little bit about him. I know he was uh, he he died. Um, I think in sort of two thousand and one. He was, um, but he was kind of native New Yorker uh, coach. I think he'd um, been one of the college basketball's most popular and successful coaches. And apparently, he was well known for bringing, uh, well, best known for bringing street lingo to broadcasts. So he was very popular, kind of around the time. So he, so it. I think there was also there's been some other links to. Um, I think some of the other people behind the scenes were involved in uh, college basketball and other sports uh, in this. So it seems to be, it's kind of, you know, what they say is uh, right about what you know. That's right. Gil Spencer Jr., um, who is one of the writers of this film, was a sports writer for um, one of the Philadelphia papers. And I wondered if he knew uh, the actor playing the coach, who's not much of an actor. It's Al McGuire. I think this is actually his only... Uh, acting credit and he's wonderful in this he's very charming and he reminds me so much of i don't know if you remember the guy in hack lantern who comes out of the party and just starts telling jokes and he's a stand-up comedian in real life and so they just incorporated his stand-up into the scene at the end of the film and um, he reminds me of him very much it's yeah it reminds me of the uh, beginning of axon which is that terrible movie where they out <laughs> doing stand-up at the beginning of the movie to pad out the the running time so um but uh, yeah, I mean, this has kind of got a great kind of young cast, although when I say young, uh, many of them were in their mid to late 20s or early 30s, some of them. So and of course, that goes back to the the classic stereotype of um, uh, 40 year olds playing teenagers, although I kind of guess as this is college, they should all be in their what, late teens, early 20s. Yeah, I'm going to assume that um, Hagen here, played by uh, Greg Salata, is, uh, is in the uh, graduate program. Uh, yes, I think you're right. <laughs> and it also, it's funny the the film has the uh, kind of uh, it's a strange kind of I, I kind of guess not morality exactly, but the main uh, the main guy Teddy, uh, played by James Carroll, who was 32 when he made this, so again kind of quite an antiquated college student. He has a strange uh, for a um, kind of because this is one of the films one of the rare but not unknown early 80s slash movies it doesn't really have a final girl as such um and so teddy's kind of well he's not really a final boy is he necessarily but he's kind of set up as possibly the main character kind of the linchpin um along with uh, julia montgomery playing um his, his girlfriend uh but he he also is not faithful to her so he's bed hopping through this movie and it's it's kind of a strange dynamic really isn't it to um set him up as a hero or an anti-hero perhaps well it's really interesting the way these characters go and i guess when we get into talking about the killer's motivations it's gonna be kind of interesting the point of view that the killer takes especially the gender of the killer kind of makes it complicated, I think. But yeah, it's like the women are kind of sexually liberated 
um, the man, like we saw a maniac in the locker room actually throwing up because him and his girlfriend broke up and he's more emotional about it than she is or, or uh, from this point of view that we're watching the film in. And, um, and so it's got this really interesting element um, that is like the men in a way can be more sensitive or more conservative with the exception of James Carroll's character. And the women do seem really sexually liberated. Like Julia Montgomery's character is actually seems not necessarily that put out by him necessarily cheating on her so much as him making a scene at the party, hitting on a girl in front of her friends. Do you know what I mean? It's a really interesting kind of characteristic you don't see in a lot of these films. No, absolutely. I think it is, it is kind of an interesting dynamic. And again, I don't know whether or not how much that was intentional or how much, um, you know, you know, because we talked about the formula of, of horror movies and I've talked about it in, in the past uh, sort of films like The Burning when the makers were making, uh, before they made that, they sat down and watched loads of teen horror movies to see if there's a formula. Um, Herb Freed um, famously sat down with his wife or famously in very small circles, sat down with his wife with a stopwatch and uh, uh, timed the, the, the length of time between murders in teen horror movies and then, of course, actually featured a, a stopwatch in, in the movie. Uh, so they were very much looking at the kind of formula. Uh, so, um, But the scene here now, of course, we've got the... I mean, the setup of the movie is that you've got um, Dickie Kavanagh, who was this... Uh, uh, the college student who was driven mad and ended up in the sanitarium and is now we see at the beginning of the movie hanging himself is just about to be buried i mean there is a kind of the the film is slightly ambiguous for me anyway is kind of you um whether or not dicky kavanagh is really dead and maybe the, the setup is he's come back from the grave or he was never really dead or whatever it was um it, so i and, and the end of the movie but for me for me that kind of it's quite striking is there's a look of death on the uh, the corpse's face at the end of the movie, um, but also a look of life. You're never quite sure uh, what um, whether or not he's really dead. Um, but uh, one thing I'd, we talked about, it just made me laugh when I rewatched this. I was kind of, I would say we are going to spoil this movie, so you've not seen it. I know, I know at least one person who watches a commentary before they watch the movie. So, so, but, uh, <laughs> um, but is that Ritania Elder turns out is Dickie Kavanagh's sister, and we see her here. Um, and uh, she's been driven mad um, by his death, presumably. Uh, it's not entirely made clear, but it kind of made me laugh. The fact is that we find out later, as she's the killer, that uh, she uh, killed two grave diggers at five and had to be on her diner shift at six. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Professional the entire way. Exactly, exactly. Um, and the other... There's some. Um... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, sorry. I was going to say the other thing that's in this scene where she's very upbeat, and obviously, probably that's probably why. Uh, you might be suspicious of her. She has a, for some reason, she has a little honking horn, doesn't she? Which I thought could be could have been a giveaway of the killer if she kind of honked if the killer honked a horn off every time after they killed someone, but they didn't they didn't go quite on on the nose quite so much. <laughs> That's probably a good thing. But I wanted to point out that in this scene, um, if we don't get to if we're not on screen when it happens, um, is that there's foreshadowing as to who the killer is because there's a there's a whole thing about Psycho in this where they're talking about the movie psycho and maniac does the impression of psycho and um and it's kind of clever when you look back that i think that they have fed the audience a couple of things about um who the killer might be and at least in terms of uh, switching genders too and i think maybe having the characters where the women seem more sexually aggressive than the men like here we've got Lorne Marie taylor you know and um 
David Holbrook, who's Hal Holbrook's son, um, and she's kind of a sex maniac, you know what I mean? And he's very much into having this girlfriend and very upset about what she's doing behind his back. And so we were kind of seeing a twist that you don't really see in these films. And so I think in a way, they're sort of giving us an idea of what's going to happen with the killer because part of Barney's um, motivation is that uh, she's upset about that Dickie Cavanaugh was driven to murder because he was done wrong by a woman, right? Mm. And so um, we're kind of seeing that played out here in front of her eyes. And I think that that's supposed to be partially the trigger. So I think his death was the major motivation. But then to see all of these sort of uh, sexual hijinks happening with the women being the aggressor was a thing that Barney didn't like because it reminded her of what led her to her brother's doom, basically. Yeah, no, I think it's 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 interesting. I mean, it it's, it certainly does foreshadow. And also, of course, the I, one thing that occurred to me this time is watching when the killer uh, has the bear, um, the knives in the bare hand. I thought, well, actually, of course, Barney would have uh, access to to knives, not that everyone would, but in a diner. Uh, so I don't know if that was a nod. The other thing that occurred to me, of course, she's um, uh, calling her, giving her a masculine name, Barney. Which mm-hmm, that's right. Is uh, which is something that was kind of utilised quite a lot in uh, in slasher movies, usually for the final girl, like Marty with uh, Linda Blair and Hell Knight. Um, so, but it was playing around with that gender thing was kind of was interesting, and I uh, presumably, I mean, it must have been intentional. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so, you know, the director was actually kind of an art filmmaker, and um, he, along with one of the producers, Richard Barclay, and a third partner named Gabby Monet, ran a company called Concepts Unlimited, who are one of the producers of this film. And they actually made industrial movies and art films, and they actually are Oscar winners, by the way. In 1973, they won an Oscar for Norman Rock- Rockwell's World and American Dream for Best Short Subject, in, again, in 73. And, um, and, they were considered where art meets industry in um, the world of industrial film. They actually had newspaper articles written about them in New York, and they come from a very, very artistic background, whereas the two lawyers who were involved with the film and the other producers, Kevin Curtis and Anthony Gervis, were lawyers who loved films and loved horror films and wanted to really badly make a movie. And we've got these two kind of mindsets coming together and kind of crashing into each other and um, and creating this film, which is why I think it's got like this sort of uneven feel in terms of tone, which I'm not that's not to diminish the film at all. I like the uneven feeling. I like this sort of weird combination of horror and humor because it is sort of um, oddly placed in, inside itself. It's not like a full blown comedy, and, but it does feel like a horror film throughout, but with all these really great fun elements. And so I think the director um was working on a different level than some of the other people for me. And so that's why I think that the horror elements work so well. I think he actually understood it and he approached it from a fairly artistic standpoint. I mean, this movie shot really beautifully. There's that great scene at the end with um, Don Sorson um, running uh, away from the killer and it's shot like it's shot from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, the camera's actually under her and it's gliding under her. And there's a real sense of artistry to some of this film. And I think that comes from the director directly, if I can use that phrase. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. It's kind of, it is interesting, I think, partly because you have that uh, sort of the different things. Because I think, uh, so I mentioned about the uh, producers, Kevin Kirkus and uh, Anthony Gervis, if, that, if I'm pronouncing their names correctly. And you mentioned they were like two boyhood, boyhood friends. 
And I think they kind of, like many of us, have dreamt that we can make better movies than the ones we see. Uh, so obviously, um, and of course, at the time, 19, um, the early 1980s, uh, like every producer uh, worth their salt was looking to make a teen slasher movies because they were seen as essentially printing money. You know, if you wanted to get into the movie business in the early 1980s, you could either make a Animal House ripoff or a uh, or a teen slasher movie. The irony, of course, actually is is the um, uh, the film came out um, at the end of 1982 when the slasher movie really had peaked, already peaked by that point. Um, I, I I mention this quite often. I mean, because I, I I see the the, um, the golden years of slash movie from 1978 from the release of John Carpenter's Halloween through to 1984 but really by um, 1981 the the slasher movie uh, was not the commercial force it had been I mean many of the films that we see today as kind of uh, classics and they are bona fide classics as far as I'm concerned like My Bloody Valentine uh, and The Burning and those kind of movies weren't actually that financially successful and uh, so, um, so the, the the slasher movie uh, kind of sort of. Would, I mean, we t- I know you've done some research into this, Amanda, about how the the horror movie in general really had peaked in the early 1980s, hadn't it? By by its kind of glory years of 1980, 81, through to 82, 83, 84, production was was um, reducing. So actually, when the film came out. Um, it was uh, released as the scare maker in uh, late uh, December 1982, I think. And um, the uh, with the tagline, I think I'm paraphrasing, but I think his his grave is empty, his corpse is cold, with this kind of ghostly looking face, which is obviously taken from the ends of the movie, um, which didn't convey uh, a kind of uh, horror uh, horror humor movie to me. It conveyed a much more of a horror movie, but also it, it kind of it, it almost as if it was trying to just in the same way as a film um, as other films at the time tried to disguise the fact that they were slasher movies and tried to turn them to zombie movies or make people think they were zombie movies um, because that was what was the kind of that was making money at the time. And so, so the movie. Um, when we talk about the release schedule and how it was promoted um, over the over the years when it was in release, um, but it it kind of it it felt like the time the film had come out, the slash movie peak had, had passed, and it was being promoted as something else. I don't know if you would agree with that, Amanda. Yeah, well, they were really struggling by 1983 and the end of 82. Uh, like the box office was was down by half. I think film production had been cut. There were like 140 uh, movies in production or scheduled to be in production in 1982 horror movies. Only 45 were produced, either in the States, Canada or Britain, which represents a 50% drop. The only big hit of 1982 was Poltergeist. So movies like Cat People and Ghost Story were bombing. The slasher movies, I think, were generally struggling. And an interesting thing was um, that the New York press had actually said, we're going to stop reviewing these slasher movies. And a lot of national papers followed suit. And it was because they got tired of these films. Um, They said that they were too violent. They didn't really enjoy reviewing them. I don't think that they looked too deeply into anything except what was on the surface of them. And they all follow a general blueprint. And that can be really boring if you're not interested in really watching the film or engaging with it, right? And And if you're a critic, to be fair, you're watching a lot of movies. And so it's hard to like approach them all the way maybe you and I would approach them as fans. But um, so they were really, really struggling. And and they called 1983 the house cleaning year, which is where they were going to take titles um, that had been sitting on the shelf. 
and and try to release them. And I think that there were a couple, I think the prey, right, had been sitting around for a while. That's one. And perhaps scalps. I'm not actually sure when scalps was made, but it looks like it was made prior to 83. And so that there was um, just, they were just taking what was on the shelf and they were just trying their best to release what they had and maybe hopefully make a profit off it and maybe not produce too much more original content. Yeah, it definitely was a time uh, time of flux because essentially at the end of the day, uh, slasher movies were cheap to make and they still made money and I'm sure this film did as well. Um, you know, it was just an interesting time but there was still some really good stuff coming out like I think The Final Terror came out in 83 like some just some movies that I think are quite good but yeah, just, uh, you know, but it's a business and when businesses don't do well then you know the machine's broken and they'll just move on to the next big genre and that's kind of what they did and i think the rest of the 80s sort of struggled in terms of horror not that the output was that bad but um it seemed like they couldn't really get a foot on what to really cash in on afterwards um just real quickly while these guys are on on screen these are the pledges and they all went on to have like really really amazing careers um the guy in the middle you might recognize he's Paige mosley he was in edge of the axe um, which would come out a few years later. It's a lot of fun. And um, he did a lot of uh, soap operas and stuff. But I found a really interesting article that in 1982, he was in an off-Broadway play titled Poor Little Lambs, which also starred Kevin Bacon, Miles Chapin from The Fun House, and David Naughton, of course, from American Wealth in London. And of course, Kevin Bacon had been in Friday the 13th. And I would have given anything to have seen that uh, play. Um, the guy on the right is Raphael Ferrer. Um, he plays Pledge 2. He does a lot of voice work. Um, that was his film debut, Girls' Night Out. Um, I guess he's most famous for doing the character Pencil in the HBO series Little Curious. But he does all kinds of trailers. And the guy on the left is Stephen McGraw. Um, this is his only acting credit. Uh, but he was a regional stage actor. I should say his only on-screen acting credit. Um, he uh, wrote plays and he performed in them and he started a club called Steve McGraw's which still exists now it's called the triad and it is known for um, being a popular venue to start very small plays that would go on to become really big um, he produced or uh, used a venue to show something called Forever Plaid and he wrote a TV movie in 1992 titled Miles from Nowhere which aired on CBS and it's interesting to see where some of these actors went but those three in particular I thought did really well for themselves yeah yeah it was kind of uh it, it must have been um a, a fun time to uh be an actor a young actor because i say they they were all seeing each other auditions weren't they and i, I saw an interview with julian montgomery uh saying that the the set felt more like a summer camp with a, a little romances and things like that going on so it would have been fun if you're in your early 20s i'd just like to kind of comment i mean there's um Carrick glenn uh, there, of course, um, was probably best known for her scene in the in the burning, uh, where she's uh, topless in a shower and uh, she gets killed um, out in the woods, like most of the people did in that f film. Um, but interestingly, actually, talking of um, nudity, this is an unusual movie in so much there's there's only well, not even male nudity. There's no nudity in this film, is there really? Um, there's a very chaste bubble bath scene uh, a little bit later on. Um, but uh, for the early 1980s, I mean, they would say The Burning was kind of fa famous, well, not famous, but um, had uh, nudity. Um, and many of the movies at the time did. And of course, one of the, the rules of, um, of slash movies is kind of, as um, Randy says in Scream or Scream 2, you know, um, uh, go big or go home. It's kind of the sequels are meant to amp everything up, which is including the gore um, and uh, the nudity. And um, uh, the um, Girls' Night Out doesn't doesn't either really, does it? It's not a particularly gory movie, 
Um, the the special effects you see are there's there's a couple of cutthroats, um, various things, but it's not um, the kind of movie like a you know decapitations in Hell Night or the Friday Thirteenth, the Tom Savini star special effects. Um, but there's no female nudity in this either. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Amanda. Why you think they that they would have gone down that route? You know, I don't. It's it's maybe just because again the director's sensibilities weren't there, and uh, it's easier maybe for me to talk about the downplay of the violence than it is for the nudity because I don't know nudity's in a movie, and I just kind of notice it. I don't necessarily think about it, but I do think about the gore aspects because these films were so famous. You know, like Friday the Thirteenth really set the bar for violence in horror films and like what you could do and of course maniac right both uh, special effects by tom savini and they were like mind-blowing but here they're very quiet but i think that they work um i to me the, one of the things that sticks out to me about this film is how jarring the murder scenes are possibly because they are kind of sandwiched into this pretty fun movie like we're watching a strip poker scene of course where there's not much stripping speaking of nudity mm-hmm. but it's this really great upbeat fun um, scene. As a matter of fact, this entire party scene is wonderful. Uh, just even the extras. Like, here's John Diedrichson in um, the uh, corner here. Um, and just his, his uh, you know, side acting is really wonderful in this. Um, but, like, um, but I like that it's just a little bit of blood. And... And for some reason, it works for me. But um, but it, I think at the time it might have been kind of disappointing for horror fans because it does it's not an all all out gore show at all. As a matter of fact, it's kind of a hard film to classify because it, it does hold back and the elements that are what supposedly made these films so alluring. Yeah, it's to say it's a, a strange mixture. I mean, it, f- it feels like they were hedging their bets when they made this. It's kind of uh, let's make a kind of Frankenstein's monster of a movie, and it's and after all these years it's actually not it's a positive in so much it is because it is unusual uh it kind of works as a teen slasher um i would say arguably it works less successfully as a kind of a frat boy animal house film uh which is something i know some of the contemporary reviews when it came out said uh, actually for um as you were saying amanda it's at the time uh, many critics were refusing to review these movies uh, hoping to kind of starve them through lack of oxygen of publicity um but actually this movie got you know it certainly compared to um uh, films like the burning i mean it got rave reviews compared to that and when i say rave reviews they're very lukewarm but they were kind of grudgingly respectful and said it wasn't actually a bad movie um, which for a slasher movie released in late 1982 was pretty much winning the Oscars, really. So, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, just real briefly, I wanted to just point out um, for people watching this, I don't know if you ever noticed the spaceman behind um, David Holbrook there, but just keep an eye on him. To me, he's like the best actor in the movie. He's got some great reactions uh, during this uh, confrontation scene. And, as a matter of fact, I just want to give a shout out to all the extras. I think this scene is so fabulously done. It must have been very difficult to film because when you get that many people sort of crammed into a room together and to capture like what feels like a really authentic frat party to me, um, he did the director did a really good job setting this up and also setting up David Holbrook as. Uh, a potential red herring he's a lot of fun in this and if he says you ass one more time i'm going to make it a drinking game <laughs> one of the things we talked about before we record the commentary was one of the things that kind of occurred to me was that i i mean that the 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 frat 
party is kind of, uh, you know, is a given in a lot of uh, college slasher movies. Um, but uh, it was that there's so many people involved in this and it's such a complicated scene. You've got so much going on, so many people. But when you actually get to scavenger hunt, it's almost it's kind of almost little um, vignettes of people, just like a couple of people there. You don't get the impression there's lots of people on scavenger hunt. And I don't know if that was because they ran out of money or, or what was going on there. Well, that's really interesting because then a bunch of people show up after the murders when they have the police there. And then we get all these like this like large group of people um, in this sort of mob scene where everybody wants to know what's going on. And there's reporters and there's cops. I think that they just wanted to, in my impression anyway, is that they just wanted to make the scavenger hunt feel really desolate. Um, ultimately, though... I'm always like, this college is really irresponsible having a scavenger hunt for what seems like mostly the female co-eds um, at three in the morning. I don't I don't know if you should really have scavenger hunts that late at night on a college campus. And um, this is the reason why, because you never know when somebody's going to show up in a bear costume and kill you. Also, of course, it's the early 1980s. You've got like, uh, you know, real life serial killers uh, all over the place as well. So it's <laughs> especially irresponsible. Um but, uh, I mean, we're coming up to the, well, not the, the first kind of murder, well, not the first murder, but uh, uh, one of the, the murders. And, I mean, it kind of it utilizes a classic classic slash movie point of view uh, of kind of um, kind of borrowed from Friday the 13th, really, of the, oh, it's you um, kind of thing. So the, the people being killed obviously know who the killer is. And it, it, the whole film is set up as a mystery. Although, um, if you were eagle-eyed, you would see that uh, uh, Dickie Kavanagh in the photos that we see of him is played by Britannia Alda just in a in a in a wig, um, so but it's obviously set up as a as a as a kind of a whodunit. Uh, so and I imagine I can't remember back so so far now, but uh, I'm sure I would have been surprised when I found out who the uh, who the killer was. But I'm trying to think if there was any other killer mascots in slash movies at this time. I'm trying to remember. I can't remember. I think it's kind of a, it, it was a kind of forerunner really wasn't it for having that uh, the mascot as the killer and also of course when we see we'll see coming up shortly the uh, the killer utilizing the knives which of course predated freddy krueger and a nightmare on elm street which wasn't made for another well, another year or so after this yeah it's a really interesting costume and i think that plays in favor of the film because when i talk about the death scenes being kind of jarring it is also really off kilter because you've got what looks like kind of just a silly costume there's nothing particularly scary about it like michael myers was scary it wasn't a costume but the mask was scary you know jason was scary but like um this is like a bear a really huggable lovable bear that kills people you know and it's just a really strange kind of like costume for a killer to wear and i think that that adds to the flavor of the death scenes quite well yeah absolutely i think it does i mean it also adds the um the, even before the killer uh utilized the bear costume you've got like uh you know uh, the killer going around well that's so the the mascot going around being inappropriate with female students which isn't something that would fly today is it no i, I think benson Oh, Benson. I don't know. There's, uh, we have to have a talk. But since we t Benson's not in the film anymore, but I just want to briefly mention that he was played by Matthew Dunn. And I'm bringing this up partially because if you go on Matthew Dunn's um, IMDb page based off of 
uh, the Girls' Night Out IMDb page, you're going to find one acting credit. But there's a misspelling on that page, and he actually did have a decent acting career. And the year before he did this, he starred in The Wave with uh, Lori Lathine from The Prey. It's a really, really great. I th- we think it's an after-school special, but it aired in primetime based off a very famous story. Um, and he'd done a lot of theater um, around Los Angeles. But I'm bringing that up because several of these uh, actors, um, if you go through their Girls' Night Out page, you will get taken to a page with no other credits. And it turns out that these actors have actually done a lot of things. And it's it's kind of a really interesting thing. And they also also potentially have the college wrong. So there's some really interesting things about this film's production. Um, but they have Uppsala College in New Jersey as the location. But um, according to Kevin Kurgis, the producer and co-writer, he uh, said that the film had been shot in Dobbs Ferry, New York, which would have made it uh, Mercy College. And in press releases that have two different AKAs for the film, two original, I should say, not even AKAs, original shooting titles, um, that this movie was originally meant to be shot at Princeton University, which kind of blows my mind. Um, But the original titles for the films, which showed up in various newspaper articles, were Blood Games and Final Clue. And you don't even see, I don't think those are listed anywhere on IMDb. Um, And so this movie doesn't necessarily have like a really straightforward production history. And um, so we did the best digging we could do. But I think it's interesting that like... um, that it was shot in this college and everybody thinks it was shot in Uppsala, which is a location for many, many films. I don't know that Mercy College had been used in a lot of stuff, but the two campuses actually look very similar. I think Uppsala doesn't exist anymore, but Mercy does. But um, I went and looked at both uh, campuses and they, they both, it's hard to determine which one it could possibly be. But the idea of it being potentially shot at Princeton, I think is actually even more interesting than the location they ended up with. Yeah, because I think what you dug up, I think originally it was meant to shoot in late 1981, wasn't it, at Princeton, under that time? Yes. Um, and then obviously there were presumably, I don't know, but there were some delays, uh, which meant it didn't start filming until kind of early sort of 1982. It's obviously a film that's uh, filmed in the winter time. Um, I just wanted to mention very quickly, just because I leave it, but is the obviously you got I think you got the cat jumping out of the the bin there, and so some of the uh, the classic uh, scares going on. But um, the uh, the um, Teddy farting in the bed is uh, his <laughs> girlfriend is very kind of Animal House kind of type thing, or King Frat, or one of any of those kind of movies. Um, uh, the interview I saw with Julia Montgomery, she was sort of saying that uh, she um, uh, she was relieved that she had no nudity in the film because uh, because she worried about what her parents would think of that. Uh, and she was very excited to be making a movie, but she said she was embarrassed by the farting scene. She said, what 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 kind of face am I supposed to make, you know, with my on screen partner sort of uh, uh, lets one off. So but there you go. I mean, that's called acting, isn't it? I was hoping we would go this whole commentary without mentioning the word fart. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I just say what I see. I say what I see. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting too because so much of this movie, not necessarily that scene, but so much of the interaction between the actors feels improvised. Another thing that I think the director brought to the set and another reason why I think the actors uh, have such a great camaraderie and uh, chemistry with each other, because a lot of this movie feels very organic and almost unwritten in um, some of the dialogue. Like later on, we're going to see Carrot Glenn and another actress. I think it's Jane Summers, the actress's name. Um, And they're talking and they're smoking pot and they're talking about synchronizing their watches, but only one of them has a watch. And it's a really cute moment between the two actresses. And it feels like 
two friends talking. And then later on, Leslie, who is the character who broke up with uh, Maniac, is having um, a conversation with Trish while they're looking for one of the items. And she's upset that Trish has brought up Maniac. And, and Trish is genuinely upset that she didn't even think that they had broken up and maybe it was a sensitive topic. And it actually feels like two friends talking and natural. And I think that there's a very naturalistic feeling to this film. Um, not necessarily in the Hal Holbrook, David Holbrook scene here, which is uh, really fun because it's a father-son working together, sort of. I'm not even sure they're in the same scene. I know Hal Holbrook shot his stuff uh, very quickly, and it feels like he did it uh, separate from most of the other cast. But um, um, there, but in the group scenes and in the scenes particularly with the actresses and the two guys that are like the funny guys, um, there's a very, very, very nice organic feel to it, very appealing to me. Uh, yeah, I wonder if it's kind of like an improv type thing, the theatre thing, because uh, that, that would that would definitely make sense. I mean, talking about Hal Holbrook and uh, David Holbrook, his son. I mean, my understanding is that uh, that he did the film to really give his son a chance. Uh, it sounds like um, Hal Holbrook did most of his shooting in a day or even an afternoon. Um, and as we we see later in the movie, he spends pretty much the last half of the movie at a phone, so literally phoning in his performance. Um, <laughs> I think that that's an in joke. You know, when I thought about it, I thought maybe the filmmakers put that did that on purpose as like just a little play on on the phrase. Yeah, but very possibly. But it's um, but yeah, uh, I talk about um, Hal Holbrook a little bit later. But David Holbrook, I mean, he obviously went on to uh, kind of a minor career before. I mean, you, I think you've already mentioned, haven't you, that he went on to become a, a therapist. Yeah. Um, but one of the the fun factoids, which uh, unfortunately for him, in the in some of the reviews, they've singled him out possibly because he's mm. the son of a star, and saying he was too old and too fat to be playing a college uh, um, basketball player. But um, I found this little piece which is bizarre it said that um the year after this in 1983 it said that he um he uh became a buddhagram um, <laughs> um basically he kind of he had to uh, go around delivering food dressed as a buddha and the piece says uh, it says is there any way to make a living dressing like a buddha and delivering buddhagrams well if you're an actor and can't get work and weigh 350 pounds that's what you do so says david holbrook 28 son of actor hal holbrook David said it's not demeaning, it's just like acting, just like playing a part. But um, luckily for him, he went on to do Creepshow too, so uh, he got out of being a Buddhagram. Do you think he would show up and he'd go, you ass? I'm trying to work out what a Buddhagram, I was thinking maybe he's delivering, but delivering Buddhagrams, I mean, what would that be? I mean, maybe (laughs) like Buddha bowls, wouldn't it? You know, sort of health food, but I don't know. That's very strange. Yeah, I wonder if he just showed up as Buddha and, like, read a poem. <laughs> yeah, it's strange. I, I have no idea. It must be an early 1980s thing. Maybe it was very in vogue then. I don't know. Well, those, like, singing telegrams were very popular. Uh, just real quickly, I wanted to point out that Paul Steltzer is the quote-unquote security man. I think this is his only scene. But, by the way, he has a really elaborate IMDb page on his other IMDb page. If you link from Girls' Night Out, it takes you to that one part here in Girls' Night Out. But um, he actually was a producer and he won an Emmy. He produced Miss Evers' Boys. And his first uh, role was actually Voyage of the Rock Aliens, um, which isn't on the page that you go to from Girls' Night Out. But um, yeah, so he was actually like a really well-known actor um, and producer. And uh, I think he passed away a few years ago. 
Okay, I mean, yeah, it's it's amazing though how many people. Well, obviously, how many people in the movie, but how many people with other uh, sort of uh, interesting credits? I mean, obviously, I mean, as I mentioned, Hal Holbrook, and uh, of course, he was uh, he had a long and illustrious career, and he was known to um, fans of horror movies uh, certainly in the early well the seventies and early nineteen eighties. Um, for Creepshow came out uh, it was nineteen eighty two, wasn't it? That was uh, uh, the same year this was produced, and uh, The Fog. Uh, he has a sort of slightly more of a more of a uh, sort of performance in that, and rituals, which is a fantastic, kind of uh, sort of deliverance-inspired kind of protest slasher from the uh, the mid 1970s, is definitely worth uh, uh, sort of checking out. But it was it was it, it's interesting. We talked about this before, but how um, that actually when this movie was released, uh, quite often the the, um, the the kind of the taglines or the advertising would say, starring Hal Holbrook. Uh, and it seemed to be kind of a curious thing at the time to sell these kind of teen slasher movies to a teen audience with middle-aged or older middle-aged men. And um, uh, I certainly, you know, they, they did that with uh, uh, um, uh, with Leslie Nielsen in Prom Night, mm-hmm. and obviously Donald Pleasance in Halloween, uh, people like Farley Granger in The Prowler. Uh, but it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think it's why they did that i'm you know not entirely sure but i think partly it was to do that if you had a name um like a, a kind of a older established actor or actress but specific actors at this time is it was easier to raise money from investors if you had a name that investors would would un- understand and also then to sell the movie in places like Cannes and other film festivals to uh, uh to get people to buy the the rights to inter- international distribution um, but even like funnily enough in uh, with uh, in Terror Train, uh, when you look at the um, uh, the kind of the advertising for that around about the time, it advertises starring Ben Johnson and not Jamie Lee Curtis, which is again is an inter- is a funny way to promote it to a teen audience. Yeah, it is, and I think it's undermining the appeal that these films had of like these great unknown actors. Well, for one thing, I think using actors that aren't that familiar to you makes a film creepier because, you know, like if you don't know what becomes of them before or after the film, there's like a more of an air of realism. Mm. So I, I kind of think that films that use a lot of unknowns benefit from that. Um, but also old white men aren't necessarily the appeal of horror movies. And that's not to diminish any of those actors. They're Leslie Nielsen, Donald Pleasant, they're all wonderful actors. But, you know, it was it was oftentimes it was these really resourceful young women, not so much here because we don't have the final girl. That's the kind of the stereotype of the trope. But like um, we came to see like these women come and survive to the next day. Mm. And Jamie Lee Curtis became an icon for Halloween. I mean, like an icon. I can't even I don't think we can overstate how important she is and how loved she is. For her work in Halloween, of course, we all loved Donna Pleasance as well, and they were great together. But you know, she to not realize that she is the selling point of something like Prom Night or Terror Train really undermines um, the audience in so many ways, especially because women too were such a huge portion of the audience. Mm. I do. I do wonder if it's also the back in the day they thought that um, uh, audiences wouldn't go and see a movie unless it was some had a kind of uh, a kind of cemented a kind of a, a, an established star in it. 
um it, it say they were a very different time to they to they are now but um i just wanted to mention obviously we've got this is a scene you were talking about with carrick glenn and the actress uh, it's laura summer as, as jane laura summer that's right yeah. and she was um in the party scene she was i kind of kind of think who did she remind me of and there was um the bass player i think it's bass player in the, the cramps fur dixon uh she reminded me of her but where she i don't know if you already mentioned this she's kind of uh um, uh, went on to quite a lot of things and mostly uh, voice talent since 1995 and has uh, done the English voiceover for many Japanese anime. Mm-hmm. Um, but also her death scene, as we we see coming up, uh, well, the after-death scene where the killer, um, it was actually utilised in some of the advertising going forward for when the film, um, as, as we sort of, uh, sort of mentioned, it was uh, released originally as a scare maker um and that was it's kind of international release title as well i don't think as far as i'm aware it ever got a release uh in the cinema in the uk but it certainly came out on video as a scare maker um but uh and as many of these films it didn't get picked up um by a, a, a kind of a, a a major studio like the likes of friday the 13th and uh, my blood and valentine and all that and happy birthday to me those kind of movies got picked up and got major distribution i think this had a kind of a regional rollout um so literally would have gone from town to town or state to state uh and it eventually got re-released in i think in late 1983 under the girls night out um a sort of banner and it had various looks like they tried various different things but one of the advertising uh, uh things they had for it was with uh is the um this idea and again it's going to be interesting to talk about is that uh um it's uh, the tagline you you know what really turns her on uh, she loves to be scared and it has an image of Jane's dead body dry, uh, tied to the radiator in a, in a bathroom which seems like a very strange um, uh, thing today and it says weird and kinky things really got a motor running uh, and I think it fam- uh, the advertising famously said uh, to, uh, to men don't bring your dates your girlfriends to this movie um, so it's kind of a, I mean do you have any thoughts about why they would have gone down that kind of that route um, for advertising desperation <laughs> you know what i mean well you know like when you're when you've got a regional film and you're uh, coming out at the tail end of like a movement and you're trying all these different things including changing the name of your film i guess you're just going to try all these different marketing ploys to get your audience in um, but again that sort of undermines um who the audience was yet again because not to keep quoting richard Knowles' blood money but he looked at some old statistics from i think polls in new york where uh 55 of the audience going to horror movies were women and of course you can argue that they are the dates that are referenced in that ad but a lot of them are just women who enjoy horror films and this movie has great female characters in them like we don't get to know a lot of them super well but we like to spend time with them And the filmmakers, I think, understood that because they made really interesting, liberated, independent, strong female characters that all get along together, you know, things that women like to see. So but then when it goes into the hands of the people who have to get the movie um, distributed, you know, um, then things change and they start to change the appeal of the film becomes something else well maybe we'll try sex even though there's not a lot of sex in this film let's promote it as a sexy film and um and then it kind of it it can't help but be disappointing to the audience at that point if they're coming into one thing and getting something else and there's a lot of movies that have been mismarketed over the years it's not like girls night out is the only victim but i do think that they fell prey to 
Um, not necessarily a movie that would have been tough to market because of the content, but a movie that would have been tough to market because of the era that it came out in, in terms of the slasher film um, popularity in the early 80s. It's it's interesting when you talk about Blood Money, because, I mean, again, that is a kind of fantastic reference book about the, the time and how movies were um, marketed. And I think it also talks about um, how that they were canny with advertising so much. They did advertise, they did things that they knew would appeal to maybe a female audience or to a teenage boy audience or whatever it was. I mean, because the film also um, got um, several other um, posters for it. One was under the title Girls' Night Out, uh, which is a poster I used to have, but it says it, which has this kind of um, these three uh, teenage girls, uh, one in in a sort of a uh, in sort of Brazil, not Brazilians, but like uh, bikini tops and shorts, running away from this um, in a studio with this white light in the background, with the the tagline "The party was great and girls' night out." They all went in, but only a few got out, um, and that in itself seems like that was more aimed at a, perhaps a female audience. So again, they were kind of hedging their bets, um, I think, about uh, uh, you know what they wanted. But funnily enough, it was more given that the Scaremaker when it came out and they had this this kind of this painting with his face with blood dripping down it um, and uh, kind of ma making it out more as if it was like a kind of like a ghostly chiller or a zombie movie. Um, by the time they were releasing it as uh, Girls' Night Out, it was almost like they'd gone back to wanting to promote it as a as a, a slasher movie. But interestingly, none of them um, really promoted it as a comedy, did they? It was always promoted no. as a horror movie. Um, so, uh, so it's uh, yeah, it's interesting to see how they did it. But of course, uh, the, the other things when we we looked at the um, how it was promoted, uh, obviously came out onto video and by by 1982 and into 1983, uh, videos were a much bigger force, wasn't it? For um, So a lot of these movies that maybe a struggle to find distribution, certainly national distribution, were being put out on video. Uh, and The Scaremaker, as I mentioned, I saw it um, on the VTC video, and the, t the tagline was that, which again makes no sense, is one by one um, he killed them until he was trapped in his own game, which of course makes no sense. <laughs> context, but it's a kind of neat um, sort of tagline. And in that one, it has again, it has an artwork of um, based on the, the 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 photo of the three women running away from an unseen assailant, but with a Bowie knife in the background, with a city in the background, like a New York in the mm. background. And again, it's kind of misleading, but possibly not as misleading as some of the other international ones. I think we looked at the Norway one, didn't we? Which has uh, which has the video release, which has the artwork, fantastic painted artwork for a completely different movie, for Night Warning, aka yeah. Baker Nightmare Maker. Um, and there was one, I think the one in um, Swedish one, uh, utilized um, artwork from the um, Grizzly, the giant bear movie. And they'd actually added um, blades on the artwork from Grizzly, <laughs> which is kind of, which is crazy. But I love all that kind of flim flam, kind of um, bizarre misdirection. Uh, the film also came out again in the UK after the VTC was a pre-search, so it was obviously before. Um, uh, I, I mean, you're, if you're not aware of the video nazis, uh, sort of hysteria in the U UK, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you probably are if you're listening to this commentary. Uh, but it was re-released probably, I think it was cut um, quite significantly actually for its re-release on the AVR label. And again, that one has a has a kind of um, 
airbrushed uh, sort of image of a woman being strangled with smashing glass, which game was very, very of its time. So uh, it got uh, uh, lots of different releases. There was another one, the Spanish release, had a, a picture from a completely different film about this very gory, bloody face. Uh, and the German one had a slight, again, the kind of image of women running away from the, towards the camera uh, with a giant bear claw behind with these knives on it, <laughs> the painting image. So, yeah, it, the film was uh, advertised in lots of different ways. And, of course, it got released in the United States um, as Girls' Night Out. Um, in uh, And, again, it, it, utilising, and that's what most people know it as, really. And, and uh, know that I think a lot of people were surprised to find out it wasn't called Girls' Night Out originally. That was kind of the repackaged. Um, but, again, yeah. it was put out by Thorn EMI on video cassette uh, with the I Love to Be Scared um, uh, with this idea. Um, some I, I don't know quite what the intention was behind that, but it seemed to fit more into those things like... Um, uh, sort of many of those other movies like um, they're playing with fire that kind of those kind of slightly almost like they were trying to play on those slightly more erotic movies that were coming out um, and uh, certainly it's not you know it's not the first movie it's been mispackaged for an audience I mean if you look at something like um, The Day After Halloween the Australian uh, movie which was shot as um, and uh, packaged as a sequel to Halloween even though it was shot before Halloween was released and had nothing to do with it so uh yeah, I guess once you plunk, plunk down your two dollars at the box office and you sat in your suit, you know that's it. Got you. They got you, but they, it did have some really neat uh, double bills uh, when it played here theatrically. Um, I went through some old newspaper ads and I saw that it actually played when it was uh, being tested. Um, in uh, where, where was it tested? It was in Clarksdale, but I can't remember the name of the state. Is it Miss, Mississippi? Uh, yeah, it 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 played with. Um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is a kind of an interesting double. Um, it had um, in Bradentown, Florida. It had a one night screening um, at a dollar theater uh, at a place that was playing things like The Toy and Missionary, which I believe are adult films. Um, it played with The House That Drip Blood in Tampa, Florida. Florida gets all the best uh, double bills. Um, in Saint Petersburg, it played at several different um, theaters uh, as Scaremaker with Beyond the Darkness. Again, there's that movie, The Toy, not playing with it, though. And um, it also played with Hell Knight, which would have been a fabulous double. Uh, in Fort Lauderdale, it played with Blood Beach. Um, and it also played with a Paul Nashie movie called Walk of the Dead in Orlando. But it also, in Miami, had uh, was part of a movie marathon in 1983, early 83, where it played with several movies, including the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Dawn of the Dead, Heavy Metal, Mad Max, Virgin Witch and the Warriors as Scaremaker. And um, that would have been like the best night ever to go to the movies. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. That's, if we had a time machine, but this is the next bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's not bad. It also, because it played regionally, it had, it's hard to figure out what the grosses were, but it did get a box office reporting in New York when it played there in its first week. Um, it made $175,000 on 45 screens, which doesn't sound that bad to me. Hmm. Well, I think it's notoriously difficult, isn't it, to work out the grosses of uh, these these movies because uh, I it sometimes I kind of I've, I liken it to sort of finding Egyptian hieroglyphics and trying to work out, you know, given that these movies are only forty years old or fifty years old, actually to find out the the real box office tally for a lot of these movies is is next to impossible. Certainly for like these these movies that went on the kind of the road and were released under different titles and. Uh, 
you know the, it's it is almost impossible to do um but um one thing i was going to i'm not sure we've mentioned it yet, but obviously the the whole thing revolves around this kind of scavenger hunt and you've got what seemed initially as a kind of bit of a strange choice really is you've got this kind of golden oldies uh dj uh sort of playing stuff but i know we kind of you you meant we you know we, before we did the commentary and we talked about obviously at the time there was this um renaissance wasn't there in the late 70s and early 80s of kind of 50s and 60s culture yeah there was um happy days was huge it was huge and uh like it's okay talk about a movie that's been mismarketed but are you in the house alone uh was marketed as a horror film it's really a drama right about a girl who's sexually assaulted but one of the things that stands out to me about that film is that uh, there's some scenes at her high school at the beginning where she's a photographer she's in all these photography classes and she takes pictures of all the stuff that happens around campus and she's taking pictures of a doo-wop group it's these teenagers doing doo-wop music and um and there's this idea that the 50s and 60s were very prominent as we went into the Reagan 80s, which makes sense because there was a lot of looking back on, quote unquote, better times. And you can argue as to whether or not they were or not. But Reagan's platform was heavily influenced by this idea of bringing things back to a a time where things were simpler, right? And the music played into that. And if you think about the 80s, there were like Stand By Me, there were, there were a lot of movies, uh, Peggy Sue Got Married, there was a lot of looking back. And um, and so to incorporate 50s and 60s music in um, a slasher movie actually for me didn't feel that odd because I grew up in the 70s and 80s when we were looking back at the 50s and 60s uh, a lot, a lot. Mm. Yeah, I think it's uh, for me as well. I mean, I grew up in the 70s and 80s and uh, you had like I talked about the cramps before who kind of uh, took the 50s music. You had Stray Cats. Mm. Yes. So yeah, there's definitely that um, that that kind of going going on, wasn't there? So, um, but I just thought while she's before while she's still alive, um, <laughs> <laughs> we probably should mention uh, this this actress here is a Mary um, really, sorry Laura Marie Taylor, uh, who of course was also had been in Friday Thirteenth Part Two. Uh, the irony actually I thought is quite funny. I mean, her real name is Lauren Schwartz. Um, but she was a long distance runner who took in part in many marathons, uh, used to run five to eight miles every morning. I thought it was probably a bit ironic that in both this and Friday 13th part two, uh, she doesn't get to be chased, does she? Maybe because she could, no. I don't know. <laughs> you know, that's really interesting because, uh, she is kind of the sexual aggressor in Friday 13th part two as well. Um, here she's though, it feels like this is all she thinks about all day. I don't know how you can even get around that with her character, but it's a lot of fun at the same time. And she is married in real life to the actor in this film playing Ralph, uh, John Dietrichson, who we uh, pointed out earlier as the geeky guy at the party. And interestingly enough, he went on to do an after school special called A Very Delicate Matter, which is about a venereal disease. It starts Zach Galligan, but it also starred Marta Kober from Friday the 13th Part 2, and he plays her sort of like love interest. Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it's funny. So the uh, how the it's all these people sort of turn up in different things, which is completely understandable, of course, at the time. Um, I, she was uh, one of the fun facts. Well, fun facts I found that she attended uh, Wagner uh, College in uh, New York Un University, which is where they filmed Silent Madness. Um, uh, a couple of years later, uh, she became a kind of household fame, uh, household face in the Burger King commercials in 1980. And in an interview with the Daily News in New York in uh, October of 1983, 
uh, it kind of was talking about her to sort of soap. Um, uh, I think she she was on some soaps, wasn't she, at the time? Yes, she was. She, um, uh, although the film had been in release since um, late 1982 under the Scaremaker uh, title, it obviously just was playing in New York. Um, but uh, they interviewed her briefly and she just mentioned this movie and she said, this is a funny movie. It's not just slice and dice. You really begin to like these people before they get sliced and diced. So, uh, yeah. Accurate. Oh, also, she's not on screen anymore. Oh, here she comes. I'm sorry. I thought uh, Lois Robbins, who plays Leslie Peterson, who has one of the most intricate and prolific uh, uh, resumes um, in this film. Um, this was an early role for her. She also would go on to do soaps. As a matter of fact, I think Lauren Marie Taylor and her both did Loving at different points. But um, she used to date uh, Harry Crosby from Friday the 13th. So it's interesting because you talk about all these ties. And I remember Mark Patton from Friday, uh, no, I'm sorry, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, talking about how he got to know people like Brad Pitt and Johnny Depp because they were all auditioning for the same roles. And that was sort of like the LA contingent of the young actors. And here we have the New York contingent where we're seeing a lot of um, sort of interwovenness between all these different actors um, working together or knowing each other on some kind of social level, which I find really interesting and kind of fun. And maybe so the camaraderie that we see in this film comes from the fact that they actually all knew each other from the audition circuit. Yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure that's the case. So it's it's yeah, it's it would so it would have been an interesting time. And it sounds like from what Julian Montgomery said that they they it was had a bit of a summer camp atmosphere. Because um, I can't remember, we've, we've mentioned Britannia Alda was, uh, she, there was some kind of, um, I mean, my understanding is the film was shot over 21 days. Uh, and obviously, because it was kind of budget conscious, I think Britannia Alda was there for a long weekend uh, and said they only had the, um, the, the, the use of the, the area for three days. Uh, and she was saying that um, the people were sleeping on the floor in between takes. And I'm kind of guessing that's probably because Ratanya Alder isn't in it that much. And I, I imagine that um, it was talking about the uh, the diner scene. Um, I'm not sure. Did we mention that she she just done Mommy Dearest? Um, and uh, she I think she was suggested for this role by one of the actors who was a fan of her in, in Mommy Dearest. And was saying how it would have gone from being working for Paramount. Um, with Faye Dunaway to sleeping in a corner uh, for a low-budget horror movie, which is kind of, I kind of guess, that's all a part and parcel of being an actor. Yeah, I guess so. But, I mean, she was the right choice because um, it's a small part, uh, and it's not a fake-out in the way that Friday the 13th is a fake-out, where we don't even see the killer to the end of the film, so we couldn't possibly guess who it was. Um, and there are references to it maybe being a woman, um, but in terms of her part at the end when she is sort of uh oscillating between being barney and her brother dickie cavanaugh that's some really fierce acting <laughs> i mean it's really good and um and i think hal holbrook's really good too i mean I, we joke around about how he's on the phone and stuff but that's not necessarily an easy thing to do and i'm not i this is a weird movie to reference but you know there's a scene in ordinary people uh, where Robert Redford wasn't happy with a performance that Donald Sutherland did, or he wasn't happy and he wanted to redo it, and all the actors had uh, gone. And they what they did was they had him stand in front of a curtain and redo the scene. And it's amazing. And he had to act with nothing to react from, right? And that's one of the things that actors rely heavily on, is having somebody react so that they can kind of feed off that energy. And so we've got Hal Holbrook just sitting here on a phone. And I'm not saying this is a tour de force, but like he's definitely like putting in his money's worth, you know, whatever they paid him for the role. He's he's giving them something back. And I think he's actually really good in this part. 
Yeah, yeah. It kind of adds a. I mean, again, it's it's one of the reasons it adds a sense of gravitas, doesn't it, to the uh, to the film as well. It kind of uh, that you know having these kind of like almost like a fatherly figure. Although again, you know, traditionally in thrillers, I can I guess in horror movies, you always had the uh, the kind of the the male rescuing the female, and actually, of course. Um, I, a lot of the slasher movies turned not on its head. I um, mean, certainly when you go from, say, um, sort of Marty and Hell Knight, it becomes the kind of uh, becomes a kind of um, pre-Uber final girl. Before, of course, Nancy in A Nightmare on Elm Street becomes the ultimate Uber final girl. Uh, although, ironically, actually in Halloween, although Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode does protect herself throughout the movie, she's saved in effect commas by uh, uh, Dr. Loomis. Um, but it's not say it's not the alone when in the film where it doesn't necessarily have a central or a final girl. I mean, say like a film like The Burning has, for once intents and purposes, a final boy who's like a bit of a pervy peeping tom. Um, so it's kind of a, the, the film's were sort of playing with kind of conventions, uh, and it also also amazes me at the time. You know, when Halloween came out and Friday Thirteenth came out, is that they a lot of films try to borrow off them, but they weren't kind of in. Some of them were kind of more slavish in their imitation than others, perhaps. But they all sort of tried sort of different things. Um, And uh, so this is more of an ensemble piece, really, isn't it? Yeah, it kind of is. And I wanted you were talking about that. And I thought it was so interesting because, you know, James Carroll, of course, is in He Knows You're Alone. He's the kind of Lothario boyfriend in that as well. And he's not in much of the film, but he ends up becoming, spoiler, the killer at the end. And... Um, what's so interesting to me is that Kaylin O'Heaney's character has to be saved by two men in that film, right? Because there's that cop that kind of comes into the film that had had his bride was murdered. And so he was like obsessed with catching the killer. And and then there was Don Scardino's character who plays her love interest, right? Mm-hmm. And and so there is this sort of idea that there, there is a final girl. And it's pretty common in most of these movies, but it's not necessarily the end all, right? Because we've just named a couple movies that don't have that, like The Burning. He Knows You're Alone kind of has a very dark um, ending. She's not quite the final girl because she does have to be saved by two different people, and even in Halloween. And so for them to kind of veer off it the way they do here is kind of unique. If you want to call Hal Holbrook the final person, I guess you can, mm. but it doesn't really have that element in it at all. But that's not to say that the other films weren't also messing around with that idea. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you kind of, I, at the end of the film, you kind of get the impression that Hal Holbrook is probably be going to, you know, apprehend uh, Barney sort of at the end of the movie um but uh yeah it's it's kind of an interesting dynamic because again nothing is really set in stone at the time they were kind of riffing off each other and it was it was almost like a pinball machine of references bouncing around and sort of coalescing into into these kind of gory movies um which we we know and love today so um but I just want to sort of uh, just mention some of the um, we talked about some of the reviews at the time, and I was going to read a couple of paragraphs of some of the reviews um, to give you an idea of how it was how it was received at the time. Because as I mentioned, um, horror movies and specifically slasher movies weren't seen as um, in some instances as as lower than pornography so uh and kind of genuinely dangerous for the um, i mean all the way through american history and uk history and history everywhere you've always got people who are going to be worrying about them the perverting uh, and destroying the the minds of the youth as it were uh and slasher movies definitely fell into that role in the early 1980s so surprising actually this movie got relatively okay reviews and one of them was um, mike hughes 
in a syndicated review that play was out across quite a few local newspapers and presumably he probably got uh, trotted out every time the movie opened up a new area. He sort of said the girls' night out is a sort of movie that inspires one quick view. It could have been much worse. Um, he said that the horror worked, but the humour failed. And that stuff may be hilarious at law school, but the audience I was with offered not a titter. So interesting that the um, uh, the audience for the film, when it played uh, uh, in on screens in, in the US, um, obviously they've been invited to see a horror movie. They hadn't been invited to see a, a slasher movie through the advertising. Um, the Atlanta Constitution gave us kind of sniffy capsule review in December of 1983 and said that mass murder on a campus where co-eds take unescorted midnight strolls through vast forests, Hal Holbrook, who can't seem to find work in major movies, uh, appears. Um, in a longer review, it poked fun at a badly cast roles. Again, I'm sure you disagree with that. Uh, specifically, Holbrook's son, David. He says he was born in 1955 and looks too old to be a college student. Furthermore, he must weigh close to 250 pounds as an unlikely basketball player, which seemed a bit unfair. As, yeah. Yeah. But um, the, the last review I just mentioned was uh, from the Jackson Sun, uh, and it said the story behind this one is probably as good as the show itself. Two young Ohio lawyers dreamed of making a film, attracted a big name in the form of Hal Holbrook, turned out uh, the flick on an incredibly low budget in 21 days, and the darn thing's getting decent reviews. You be the judge in this latest, latest entry about a college campus bloodbath combining horror and humor. So, well, so he watched that one. He actually saw it. <laughs> well, kind of realized what it was. There was a guy named Greg Tozan who wrote for the Tampa Tribune. And um, he didn't have much to say about the movie at all, but he did call it uh, a movie that came from the ketchup and cleaver variety. Yeah. And I was just thinking about how before we called these slashers, what were they called? Like teeny kill picks and stock and slash or stock and something. And then ketchup and cleaver. Everybody was trying to coin the phrase slasher before slasher i think um uh, siskel and ebert may have called them dead teenager movies yeah there was a there was we would do, this attempt to organize them all into one category was like kind of a thing and then slasher came about and it just stuck but i just think it's funny he called it ketchup and cleaver and i kind of feel like when he was writing that he was like oh this is so good <laughs> i think the, the guy when he reviewed the the burning uh and he called it the, called it gore bore uh, so they just love coming up with these kind of titles for uh, these movies. I think there was a bit of a love-hate relationship. Um, they still hated them. In fact, funnily enough, I got interviewed for by that. I can't remember his name now, but it was a uh, he was a he reviewed the the burning of these movies, and he was one of the, the um, uh, reviewers who said they weren't going to review them anymore. And he actually interviewed me for when my book came out in uh, ten years or so ago. And uh, I just sort of said to him, "Do, do you feel um, any more kindly to these movies now?" And he just said, "No." So, so, so time's not a great healer. I guess not. Yeah, this was just such an interesting time um, to be into horror because there was just so, there was some weird, I mean, it was a wide variety. We talk about slashers a lot, but of course there was stuff like Basket Case came out, you know, and there was interesting, interesting plays on these, especially so if 81 is the golden year, 82 and 83 were the years that they were trying to figure out how to recreate the formula, but make it different to kind of keep audiences interesting. So we saw things like Blood Beat. We saw older women um, starring in these movies like in Visiting Hours. We saw, again, another ensemble piece like with Alone in the Dark, something like that was uh, had a dream quality to it before Nightmare on Elm Street with The Slayer. I mean, there was a whole gaggle of movies all doing different things and so it seems really kind of criminal in a way that you're being hired to be a film critic but you're approaching these movies without uh 
and not at face value. You know what I mean? You're just looking at them as for what they've been categorized as this sort of ketchup and cleaver variety. And that's all it is to you. And so why even bother? But but all these movies were doing something vastly different from the ones before it, you know? Yeah, I think there was kind of there, there was a, a kind of a kind of anger at the, from film critics that these movies were critic proof for a quite a long time that, uh, you know, people would go and see them. And literally at the time there were films. And I remember from late 70s, early 80s when I was at the school bus going past the cinema and there would be every week there would be Friday 13th Part 2, Happy Birthday to Me, a double bill alien and uh, Dressed to Kill. It would just be one after the other, The Fun House, My Bloody Valentine. It would just be this wonderful cavalcade of horror movies. It, it can, so there was, there'd be, you know, at the time, it's like when one movie went, uh, you know, the next week there'd be another one. And I think the critics just didn't like the fact that they had no power to turn people off these movies. And it's also, it's a credit to the longevity of these movies because there's an awful lot of comedies and other types of horror, um, not horror movies, but non-horror movies that came out, um, lower budget um, dramas uh, or, you know, any all sorts of other films with some big stars that were released around this time that are all but forgotten today. And there's something about these early 80s slasher movies and horror movies that still resonates with an audience today. And it's uh, and it's an audience that um, goes back to people of our age, but also like younger people as well. Um, so there, there's definitely there's definitely longevity to to these movies, even though they do look vastly dated now. And of course, some a lot of that it's it's um, it's charm. But um, yeah, well, speaking of the dated part. Uh, the woman who did the costumes, just because it made me think of it, because the costumes are so wonderful and so 80s, um, is, was a woman named, she just went by one name, and, and I believe you pronounce it Maja, M-A-I-J-A. And she'd worked with uh, Concepts Unlimited on several projects, including that Norman Rockwell short that won them the Oscar. Um, and she did a TV movie with them called The Halloween That Almost Wasn't with Judd Hirsch, where he plays Dracula and Marriott Hartley, that also has fabulous costumes. But I think that the fashion in this film is, is really good, and... I wondered if I'd be able to squeeze that into the commentary <laughs> because every time I watch this movie as particularly Leslie's leg warmers are really amazing, <laughs> but also the costumes at the Halloween party are really good. Like look at the spaceman. He's wonderful, you know? And, and so she did a really good job, but she only has three film credits and um, they are all with this company concepts unlimited, which was run by the director, Richard Barkley, the producer. Interesting. Yeah. It's kind of, I, I always thought actually with the killer's outfit, how if you've ever dressed up and I have dressed up uh, for various promotional things once as a pig, a uh, giant pig, and it's not the easiest thing to see out of those eye holes or to move. <laughs> so I think as a, as a, a psycho killer, it's probably not the easiest thing to uh, get around in, but uh, there you go. Yeah. One thing also I wanted to bring up, I don't know where to place it, but something I noticed about this film when we talk about it being sort of this weird mixture of everything, do you know, there's no, and we should have brought it up. When we were talking about the uh, bands. There's no composer mm. to this soundtrack. It's all library music, um, which I'm fascinated by because it's really good and it fits the film really well. It, it came from a music library called FV sound limited, which they have a credit at the end. Um, they were run by a guy named Fred Vertensky uh, on 45th street in New York. And the music was overseen by Richard Barclay, who was the other co-owner of uh, uh, Concepts Unlimited. Um, and so I'm fascinated by them not having a composer because the music, it feels so unique and um, like it was made for this film. Yeah, it is, it is funny. I mean, I presume, it, again, it was a money-saving venture. I do wonder whether or not they kind of ran out of money after they made the movie, so they maybe cut some corners. Although, of course, you've got the... Um, 
uh, the, um, the, the sort of satin clad DJ all the way through the movie. So uh, it's, it's difficult to know. But I just kind of um, this this patch here is quite interesting because I've, a lot of this, it almost feels like it could have been made for TV, this movie. Uh, and the, the scenes here now with the police interviewing the students about who the killer is feels very almost like, I mean, I know you're the queen of the TV movie but it for me it feels like that kind of thing you could very easily fit into a sort of tv movie or a cop show of the week Oh yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's got high drama. It's got the right kind of melodrama, and it's also got kind of an intimacy to it, and uh, and a scene you don't normally see in these movies. Well, so something interesting since we we're talking about prom night. One of the things about prom night that has been written about. It's not my idea, and it's and you can apply it to all kinds of slasher movies of this era. Is how the adult figures have been rendered impotent, and and they're not very helpful to the younger generation and it's sort of a metaphor right for these young people coming up in the 80s and feeling sort of abandoned um by fam the family unit and by adult figures because of the changing face of the family with rising divorce rates and different things happening and here we've got a pretty efficient rent-a-cop who solves the crime and um and then we've also got some we spent some time with these detectives one of whom is played by richard bright um he's the guy conducting the main um, interrogation scene and um, he was married to Britannia Alda um, and uh, married to her until he passed away in 2008 and you don't normally see the police procedural to the depth that you see it here like you see it it's in he knows you're alone right and, and obviously that cop comes into play throughout the film but the actual procedural part often takes a back seat to the rest of the film and here they're really focusing on this interrogation and it's interesting because characters like Maniac have disappeared for that huge bulk of the center of the film and then they show up again and Ralph Bostwick right um, mm -hmm. comes in and tells his story and then they use these flashbacks that we would are really interesting because we were there when these scenes happen it wasn't like we're watching a tv series where like that scene happened three weeks ago and they have to remind us it happened 25 minutes ago <laughs> where they want us to like remember the scene and so there is kind of a focus here and it could be a number of things it could be filler um but it does have a, a quality to it that you don't see in a lot of slashers i kind of I, for me it feels like they were they were trying different things and it felt like they wanted to try this as a an extra thing that would sell the movie like a um, like a cop procedural thing, so it was kind of like, say, this Frankenstein's monster of of genres, um, and it works in, in a whole. But I just want to mention, I don't think we've mentioned uh, Mark McChesney, have we? The the actor no. who uh, plays Maniac. Uh, he um, he was an interesting actor. I mean, he was he did a lot of theatre and uh, uh, from the late seventies, and he was in uh, he he was a a gay rights activist who sadly died of AIDS-related complications uh, in uh, 1999. And uh, he was in Larry K uh, Kramer's AIDS drama, The Normal Heart, uh, also sort of starred in uh, adaptations of uh, John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. Uh, and uh, he was kind of a charity worker who did like Project Angel Food in Los Angeles. Uh, so, it, um, and I think he's probably best known, although I think he was done up in huge amounts of makeup uh, for Star Trek The Next Generation. So it was a, it's an interesting mixture of actors and actresses in this. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, uh, like we weren't able to reference all of them when they were on screen, but Paul Christie, who plays Dancer, who's one of the funny guys, he's this huge voiceover artist, and he was uh, he's famous for playing Louis the Lizard for Budweiser, doing the voice of that. And he also wrote music for Meatloaf. 
Uh, you know what I mean? Like, it's just such an eclectic group of people. And a matter of fact, John Dietrichson here, who plays Ralph Bostwick, was in a play, uh, a production of Da in San Francisco, which starred Bernard Hughes, who was uh, reprising the original role, which I think he did on Broadway. So he was working with a very famous um, actor. Bernard Hughes was the grandfather in Lost Boys. I guess that's what he's most famous for horror fans for. But um, these, like, really prestigious uh, theater roles, you know? And, and but then James Carroll who, uh, you know, plays Teddy, he had done no theater as far as I could see. Um, he started uh, in after-school specials. Um, and then he predominantly did film and television, soap operas. A lot of these actors did soaps. And David Holbrook, I don't think, had a theater background either. Um, but but a lot of them did. So, yeah, it's this really, really cool, eclectic cast. Yeah, it's kind of uh, interesting. I mean, one of the things that we, we talked said that we were about talking about was the uh, because some of the slash movies at the time that had these kind of downbeat endings. I mean, this isn't as downbeat as, say, The Dawn of the Red Blood, is it? Which is another 1982 film where, you know, um, I won't spoil it if you haven't seen it, but it uh, doesn't end well. Um, is obviously a lot of these kind of, uh, I was thinking back to, you know, Halloween and Friday the 13th, they all kind of end on a, um and not necessarily well i kind of guess it's a down note isn't it but it's a kind of a it's a sting in its tail i kind of guess and that was something that set in the set in the formula really uh for either one final scare or 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 something but there there was a kind of um certainly at the time in cinema and i think of coming after this um after punk rock and into kind of post-punk there was a kind of like a a nihilism i kind of guess in in cinema to some degree um uh, and uh, I wonder if that kind of that feeds into these uh, these endings of films. I mean, there's very few slasher movies that end with a happy ending, is there? That I can think of. Um, even if no, but there's this idea that they're going to keep going after the film, and in some movies they don't, like in Madman, right? That's it. Yeah, yeah. I can guess even sort of like I mean, the only one I can think of where it actually feels like going back to Hell Knight and Linda Blair at the end of that one when she walks away after vanquishing, but still she's lost all her friends, isn't she? All her friends. Yeah. You know, she's been through huge trauma. Um, but with the, with the ending of this film, it's kind of, I kind of, I always, it, it's it's funny because it catches me off guard. And that's what I kind of love um, often about even these quite formulaic movies that they have, they go off on tangents. And this film really goes off on a tangent at the end, doesn't it? Um, yeah, well, it's going to become like all the humor is gone now. And I just want to briefly, while we're on the scene, this is Tony Schultz, who um, have had a pretty prestigious theater background. He was one of the original players in Greece. And um, he was in a play called The Passion of Dracula the year before he did this. And he's really excellent in this scene. He's an amazing actor. He would go on, I think he'd either done Ryan's Hope before or after this. And that Suzanne Barnes, um, who was most famous for doing toothpaste um commercials <laughs> before she did this and now she lives in um i think utah and she did she does makeup and she actually did some of the makeup for the 2002 olympics but i, I didn't want to get off the track there but like this movie does totally lose that tone that it had been carrying through like 80 percent of it at this point and um and it's interesting the way it becomes like here it's like a straight out horror movie like from here on out it's no holds barred right and and it's very effective in what it does starting from when um 
Don Sordenson, the character that Suzanne Florence plays, gets kicked out of the apartment. Um, it becomes something else. And then they start uh, taking things like this. Um, I mentioned it, referenced it earlier. We're going to see her running and the cameras underneath her. It's straight out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know what I mean? I think I feel like that's a direct reference um, from that. And I know Curgis and Gervis, um, the two uh, guys who uh, were the lawyers who co-wrote this, said that they watched a lot of horror movies. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was an influence um, of theirs that the director played around with. But um, yeah, it switches tones in a lot of interesting ways. And I like it because I think... Um, you're sitting down for one thing and once you get settled into it being kind of this lighthearted romp with some murders in it, it kind of drops that and it becomes far darker and leading up to this ending that you're completely not expecting. And we were talking about movies that had dark endings that end in ways you don't expect and also gender bend. If we want to throw that in there, you can look at Unhinged, which came out around the same time, I think, as this. I can't remember what year it was that it was released, but that was um, a really interesting film that in a way shares a kinship with that with this film in those elements, you know what I mean? So um, I love the way it just changes tone. It kind of catches you off guard. And I think that's one of the reasons why the film endures because it does have these kind of surprising elements to it. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree. I mean, also it's actually, it was actually the first time watching it that I picked up on the, the psycho ref. I mean, I picked up on the psycho reference obviously, because you know, but the fact that it's referencing the kind of the gender bending identity of the killer, um, and it's it's arguable about whether or not uh, the um, the Barney character thinks is becomes Dicky or it's what it is, what it is because she she never she doesn't actually dress as Dicky does she she kind of uh, she dresses in no. the bear mascot and she's dug well not dug up a brother but put him in a in a um, put him on a chair inside what looks like a freezer doesn't it. Yeah, and it's it's kind of upsetting, isn't it? <laughs> but that wasn't unusual either, because you know, on graduation day, the killer keeps that girl's body, the runner at the beginning of the film that has the heart attack, and that's really dark. And that's in another movie that has this kind of light feel to it, right? Mm -hmm. And you're not expecting to see this like tortured guy who's kept his girlfriend's body in his bedroom for like a year. You know what I mean? And then you're like, what? And nothing underneath has a similar kind of ending. I don't, I don't want to be too spoilery with all these films. I know that one's lesser known. But, um, yeah, it's got these really interesting elements that they just kind of, like, approach at the end of the film. Like, there's no necessarily, um, there's not necessarily an indicator that that's where this is going to go. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, the killers in a lot of slash movies either sort of do that or they kind of collect their victims, don't they? And um, artfully arrange yeah. around a table like uh, Hell Night or Happy Birthday to Me or or many many films. Um, so yeah, it's it is it was again again it's just that this kind of pinball reference where they're flying off in different directions and they're utilizing these kind of tropes and uh, what will become tropes and all these kind of things, but come up with something quite unique and i think girls night out is it, it, i think it that's why it sticks in my in my mind really because it it is like a it sort of pinballs all over the place from uh, tonally and that shouldn't work in so much that it, you know it, it should be annoying but it's not in this in this kind of context it's uh, it actually works uh, as a whole and um uh, and topped off with that real kind of what the hell kind of ending which uh really sort of t t you know sort of threw me off guard when i saw it and actually sort of left me felt quite creeped out which again for a movie that's got someone farting in bed with his girlfriend <laughs> to end that it's kind of quite something isn't it 
You had to go back to that, didn't you, Justin? <laughs> well, you had to do it. <laughs> no, but you're right. It does. It does kind of just it throws you off. I mean, I don't know how else to word that. But like um, we were talking about movies in, that it might have kinships with like Unhinged. But it also um, Prom Night is a really interesting companion for this film as well, because in Prom Night, um, you know, he's sort of becoming his sister. Uh, Alex Hammond is becoming Robin and it's jarring and it's upsetting. And this movie is doing kind of the same thing. And whereas I think prom night is more focused on sort of dealing with the trigger effects of loss and grief and what happens when you repress that kind of anger and sadness over the death of someone you love. This movie doesn't really hint that that's where this is going, but clearly she's uh, Barney's character. The character of Barney is referencing these kind of things throughout the film. Like she's telling Teddy, what a good girlfriend Lynn is be good to her because she's one of the good ones. Right. She says something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And she's um, it's kind of telegraphing that story that they're learning at the party about how Dickie Cavanaugh was done wrong by a girl. And that's what led to his demise. And so this character has internalized this idea of, of women, even though she is a woman that, that makes it really complicated and you can unpack that in an essay, but probably not here, but um, that, um, it's it's sort of made her anti-woman in a way. I don't know how else to word that. And looking at these very judgmental, even though Teddy is cheating, right? You know what I mean? And of course, I guess he gets his comeuppance at the end, and maybe that was the point. But like, but the but women are generally the targets of the film, and so it's like it's just a really interesting approach, you know, as psychoses that they're kind of just dancing around with a little in the film, and it makes it really interesting. Absolutely. I think it's, it's it, well, it's interesting. It's still got the long shadow of Psycho hanging over it. And even sort of even back in 1982, that was still, you know, 22 years ago. And that um, that that kind of the kind of the that element of kind of gender bending element has, has run right through uh, slasher movies. I mean, a film, I mean, more explicitly in, say, a film like Fatal Games, where you actually have mm. a killer who is actually transsexual. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, we're talking in, in realms of fantasy, and the, uh, so the idea that um, this somehow um, uh, indicates uh, more of an abnormal psychology is is obviously completely wrong, because that's you know. But right. we're talking about a, a you know a, a fun slasher movie from 1982, so shouldn't get you know we don't want to get too carried away in in that kind of gender politics or the, you know um, uh, just because it's you know it's difficult and we're talking say in the in the context of say like me too and those kind of things i mean the film you know when we're talking about a film like greece being cancelled for one line in it and then you've got a film where you've got a mascot sort of um groping women sexually throughout the first half of the movie it's kind of it's you know we have to look at this this film in, in context of its time really um it's, it's so it's, it's always complex isn't it to look at these movies but i still kind of you know, I watched them when I was 14 and I'm watching them now and I can still, you know, I, I, I get enjoyment from them because they're, they're ultimately, the bottom line, they're fun movies, aren't they? That's... Yeah, they're not meant to, like, you're right. So Benson's character, all these characters have very questionable qualities to them. A lot of them do. Sheila does, you know, but I think it's okay to, like, recognize that maybe they're not doing the best things for themselves or other people, but this is still a good film. I mean, I think if you're if you're interacting with the film the way I do and what I think is a healthy way is to recognize that there are some elements that maybe shouldn't fly right today, but that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy them in the film that they exist in that was made 30 years ago. You know what I mean? 
You know, it's like reading romance novels. Like the romance novel, the whole goal is for the girl to kind of give up her life and subsume herself into this man's life. That's not cool. But the but the books are great, and I love to read them. And so I think it's okay to have these conflicting point of views while you're watching a film. As a matter of fact, I think it's important. Um, you know, and kind of gives you some insight into yourself. Like, why do do I? Why am I bothered by? Uh, Benson groping Carrot Glenn without her permission, right? You know, and and to recognize that, but also to recognize that this is a movie from 1982, written by a couple of guys who were comedians, you know, and a, and a coach, or I'm sorry, a sports writer, you know. So like, it's coming from all these different elements, and that's okay. But it is interesting to look at like the body of these films. Because it wasn't just in theatricals. There were TV movies that had these kind of gender-bending twists. And I won't be too spoilery about them, but movies like Hotline and Scream Pretty Peggy definitely hit on these. And those are movies from the 70s and 80s. And then, of course, we had Dress to Kill, which was a theatrical, right? And Hide and Go Shriek. And so, which is not necessarily gender-bending, except that the, he's kind of a cross-dresser when he kills. But, like, there are these things that are happening in these films, and I'm not exactly sure what it's saying about transsexuality or anything like that but um it's okay to have them in here and recognize that that's not how we think about these kinds of things today absolutely yes and i just kind of obviously with looking at the iconic shot of kavanaugh and it for me i was kind of i was waiting for him to smile or wink i know the original Mm -hmm. ending of uh i i think it's friday 13th part two wasn't it mrs um uh, mrs Voorhees' uh head was supposed to wink on the altar uh, but they cut back so it'd be too silly but it felt like almost i for me it felt like he, he was there was something supernatural going on there i don't know if it was intentional but uh it was uh it's very lifelike because Britannia alda is very alive and <laughs> well yes <laughs> yeah it's, but it's, it's that kind such of, a that, creepy uh, beautific smile that slightly kind of like knowing smile that was on there which is a yeah a creepy ending to uh a fun movie so um so we're coming up to the credits now. So any final thoughts on uh, on Girls Night Out, Amanda? I just think it's a it's a wonderful movie, and I'm so happy to be here. And thank you for listening. Yes, I'd echo that. I uh, say well, thanks to Arrow for putting this film out. It's, it's I say it's always a joy to uh, revisit these movies um, so many years later and actually see them how they would have been given some idea of how they would have been seen actually at the cinema. So. Uh, uh, kind of not on the 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 old uh, pan and scan VHSs I might have seen back in 1983. So uh, yeah, so I hope you've enjoyed uh, this uh, commentary. Um, you know, and uh, thank you for listening. Thank you.